Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beat Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Hope is a good thing. It can help us imagine a better world in the midst of despair. But it can also lead to disappointment when things don't change. In the 2021 Dr. Eddie Sharfman Memorial Lecture, The Danger of Hope, Rabbi Avi Strausberg considers different types of hope and how we might avoid disappointment by creating the world we are hoping for. Let's listen in. Today, I want to explore whether there might actually be a danger in too much hope. You know that that's a crazy thing to say. What happens when we are too hopeful? What happens when we stake too much on a positive future? But before we get there, I want to first start in a place of hope, a place of pure hope. And I want to look at a story of hope from the Talmud. And I want to ask when we read this story, what do we mean when we say hope? Looking at Mesachet Makot. Um, we're going to be with some friends of ours, some rabbi sages of ours who are going on a walk. Rabbi Gamaliel, the Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, the Rabbi Yeshua, the Rabbi Akiva. So these four rabbis were once going for a walk. And then we're actually not going to follow that original story because we find out that once again, they were going for another walk, that these are rabbis that sometimes hang out together and go on various journeys. So the same group of rabbis, these four rabbis, are going on a, a walk together. And this other time, they were going up to Jerusalem. And when they got to Haratzopim, when they got to um, the site of the destruction of the temple where the temple was no more, they tore their clothing in mourning. When they actually got to the site of the temple itself where the temple had been, they saw a fox emerge from the site where the Holy of Holies was. Three of them, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Elizabeth ben Azariah, and Rabbi Yeshua, they started crying, and Rabbi Akiva Mitzachek, he started laughing. And so before we go on the story, we, I just, we, we just have to really note, it's sort of hard to imagine, to put ourselves in their position, that what, what they are seeing is they're going to this site that was once the site of the Beit HaMikdash, that was once the site of this holiest place, the site where all of the people could come together, um, they could come together in worship, they could come together for atonement, they could come together in joy, they could come together to cry, they could come together to bring sacrifices, and they had this guarantee that when they came to this place, they would experience God's presence here. Um, it was really like this, the central organizing place, the heart of all Jewish life, where all of them, they could come together, not only with each other, with with God, and this place has been destroyed. And not only is it destroyed, what's going on in the place that was the once the holiest of the holiest places, where the uh, the holy Aron was, the Koche Kodeshim, what's going on there? There's a fox that's coming out of this place. And so three of them see this site, and they cry. And Rabbi Akiva, he sees the same thing. He witnesses the same place, the same destruction. And what does he do? He laughs. Amrulo the three rabbis say to him, They say to him, why are you laughing? Amar lehem, he says back to them, Why are you crying? What's sort of amazing about this moment is that so often, perhaps even right now, 
relating to the same um, set of facts, or we're relating to the same event or circumstances in front of us, and we process those things, we respond to them in really different ways. Three people might be crying, one person might be laughing. What's sort of amazing about this moment is that they actually notice that they're responding and processing this information in different ways. And with curiosity, they ask each other about it. Why, why are you crying in this moment? Or why are you laughing in this moment? They make space to hear the other person's experience of how are you processing this destruction? How are you processing this loss? So he says back to them, why are you crying? Amrulo, they say to him, a place about which it was said in the book of Numbers, in the book of Bamidbar, the one who is a non-priest um, who approaches shall be put to death, meaning that only, only the priest can approach this holiest of holy places that is such a sacred place that even if a non-priest were to approach it, they should be put to death. And now there are foxes that are sort of dancing or walking amongst the ruins. Will we not cry? This place, it's, a, it's not only that the temple has been destroyed, but this total sacrilege has occurred to it that has been sort of um, defamed in this way that now these foxes are just prancing where it once was the holiest of holy places. And he says back to them, and it's for this reason that I laugh. Um, and so now he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. He says, in the book of Isaiah, it says, and I will take to me faithful witnesses to attest Uriah, the priest, and Zechariah, the son of Yibarechiahu, um, connecting the prophet Uriah and the prophet Zechariah. And then the, the Gemara asked here, the Chima Inyan Uriah itself, Zechariah. And what is the relationship connecting um, Uriah with um, Zechariah? And then it says, that um, Oriah was prophesizing during the first temple and Zechariah was prophesizing during the second temple. So why are they being brought together? That the text, the reason why they're being brought together in this one pasuk is the prophecy, the second prophecy from the second temple from Zechariah is being tied, is being connected to, is being made dependent to the first prophecy, which is to say that the second prophecy, we're only going to know if the second prophecy comes through, the later prophecy, if the first prophecy also happens. So what's the first prophecy that's so important now? In the prophecy of um, Uriah, it's written, therefore, for your sake, Zion shall be plowed as a field and Jerusalem shall become rubble, and the Temple Mount as the high places of forest. This is a prophecy of the destruction of what's going to happen. This is a prophecy of great sadness, that what's going to happen in Jerusalem, exactly what we're seeing now, that it's going to be destroyed, it's going to be rubble, and it's going to be like the high places of a forest, meaning a place that is so desanctified that what happens there, foxes play there, foxes run where the Holy of Holies once was. And it said in the prophets of Zechariah, it is written, there shall yet be elderly men and elderly women sitting in the streets of Jerusalem. This is a prophecy of comfort. This is a prophecy that someday Jerusalem will be built again and the elderly men and the elderly women and the people will fill these streets, these streets, this area that is now rubble, that is now destroyed, that is now desolate ruins with the foxes acting sort of as owners there in the space will one day will be refilled again with the elderly men and the elderly women. And so Rabbi Akiva is saying, until the prophecy of Oriah was filled, I was afraid that the prophecy of Zechariah would not be filled. 
I didn't, until I saw that the destruction happened, that that one was fulfilled, I didn't know that this hope-filled prophecy would be fulfilled. Now that the prophecy of Oria was fulfilled, it is evident, it is clear to me, I can say with certainty, that the prophecy of Zechariah remains valid. And so the sages say to him, um, they say, Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, nihamtanu. Akiva, nihamtanu. What we see in this text is that they're processing the same set of facts. They're processing the runes, okay? And yet we see two totally different responses to the runes. Rabban Gamliel, Rabbi Ellers of Nazariah, and Rabbi Yeshua, when they see these runes, they see these runes and they cry. They see the runes and they see sadness and they see destruction. And Rabbi Akiva, when he sees the runes, he laughs. I want to um, notice a couple of things about this text. One is the first thing um, that I already noted, the first thing that when they when they process the events in a different way, um, when, when Rabbi Akiva is laughing and happy and hopeful and the other rabbis are sad and despair, they don't judge each other's responses. It's not like, you know, the the other rabbis say to Rabbi Akiva, your response is totally inappropriate. What are you doing? Or Rabbi Akiva says, you know, get over yourself. Stop crying. We've already, we've moved on. We're in the time of hope, you know, that they actually just start in a place of curiosity and asking questions um, and noticing what's going on with you here. Why, why are you laughing? Why are you crying? And whereas the first three see only sadness and despair, um, perhaps they are immobilized in tears or unable to see a way forward. Rabbi Akiva, he sees the same destruction. He sees the same runes. Um, and yet he's able to imagine a way forward. He, he sees a future in the way forward. And he believes with conviction that this future will come true. And it's hope. It's the ability to hope that allows him to see a future where his friends, his fellow rabbis, only see despair. And his hope then gives them hope, that hope in this text is like a contagious thing. Hope is something that we can give and we can share with each other. What's sort of amazing at the end of this text, at the end of this text, they say, you've comforted us, you've comforted us. Presumably, perhaps they stopped crying. Nothing's actually sh- changed in this text. They're still standing in front of runes. They're still however many years away from this prophecy of Zechariah that one day the men and women will be back in the street. Nothing has changed. They're living in the same world that might have been hopeless before. They're in that same world. But what has changed is their perspective, that an orientation has shifted that allows them to see the world with a little bit of hope and imagine a way future, a way forward where they could not before. I want to look now to a text by former president of Czechoslovakia, Baklav Havel. He has this beautiful teaching on hope, hope as being about a perspective, hope as being about a stance that in some ways is really similar to Rabbi Akiva here in Makot, um, but in some ways is really different. So who was um, who was this former president, Baklav Havel of Czechoslovakia? For one, he was someone um, that was instrumental in overthrowing communism in Czechoslovakia. Um, he was someone that was really um, in support of di- direct democracy, and he was a strong advocate and worked really hard um, in granting amnesty to many of those who were in prison during communism, um, to political prisoners. And he, in fact, was imprisoned several times for the work, for the political work that he um, was doing in his time. Um, so he firsthand um, experienced what it was like to be in prison. So let's take a look at his text, text number two, in which he shares a little bit about hope. He says... The kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It is a dimension of the soul. It is not essentially dependent on the world or estimate of the situation. 
Like hope has nothing to do with the reality of what's going on around us. It's not dependent on the world. Hope is not a prognostication. Prognostication meaning to say hope is not um, dependent on some sort of prophecy. Hope is not dependent on some sort of guarantee of a future world. So hope he's saying both is hope is not dependent upon the world in which we live now. It's not dependent on the reality of what's the kind of situation are we going in. And also hope is not dependent upon a prediction of the world we're going to end up in. And in some ways, where I think that he really aligns with Rabbi Akiva in the in the earlier text is that he says. Um, hope is a state of mind, not a state of the world, right? Rabbi Akiva, he sees the runes. The state of the world is a world that is in destruction, a world that is destroyed, a world that perhaps is hopeless as his fellow colleagues and friends see. But Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, he doesn't see that because for him, hope is not dependent on the state of the world or the situation itself. It's a state of mind. Where I think Rabbi Akiva differs here from Vaclav Havel is that what gave Rabbi Akiva the ability to hope was knowing the prophecy was going to true. He believed with certainty that the prophecy was going to true and that gave him hope. Whereas what Vaclav Havel is saying here is that hope is not only not dependent upon the world we're in, it's also not dependent upon a certain prediction that something is going to even turn out for good. Rather, it is an orientation of the spirit. It's an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather in an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The more unpropitious the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper the hope is. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. What's sort of so amazing here for Rabbi Akiva, what gave him hope is the certainty now that I have seen that the first prophecy has come true, the prophecy of the destruction, the prophecy of the Temple Mount being turned into a forest where the foxes roam, I know with certainty that the second prophecy will come true. Here, Vaclav Havel is saying something different. He's saying the thing that we are certain about is not the future. It's the certainty that something is good, that something makes sense this thing that we're pursuing, this thing we believe in, even if we don't know with certainty how it's going to turn out. In short, I think that the deepest and most important form of hope, the only one that can keep us above water and urge us to do good works, and the only true source of the breathtaking dimension of the human spirit and its efforts, is something we get, as it were, from elsewhere. Right, that hope is something that's not only not connected to the realm we're in now, it's not connected to the certainty that something is going to go our way in the future, but hope is actually something that comes from beyond. It is also this hope above all, which gives us the strength to live and continually to try new things, even in conditions that seem as hopeless as ours do here and now. It's the hope that gives us the strength to keep trying, Um, to keep experimenting, to keep pushing, to keep trying to make things better, even in moments that feel hopeless. So we see here that hope is a state of the mind, 
Um, he's saying that hope is a state of mind that's independent of the circumstances around us, or even the likelihood that something we're working on will come to fruition. Rather, it's this orientation of the heart, and without it, we would not be able to work towards the things that we believe in, the things that are good. In both of these texts, in the text from Rakhav Havel here, and in the text from Akot, we see that hope is indispensable. For Rabbi Akiva, hope is tied to prophecy, and hope is tied to the certain belief that good will come. Whereas for Havel, hope is independent um, of the world we're in. It's independence of where we're going, and rather it's an orientation of the heart, it's an orientation of the spirit that's independent of our circumstances. But for both of them, hope is an orientation that gives us strength, and it allows us to imagine a better future that is more hopeful than the one in which we currently inhabit. Um, what's standing out to you about these texts? How do you understand hope in these texts? And what do you see as the role of hope right now? So a couple of people are, are noting this connection and also the question of what's the relationship between hope and faith? Um, though I'm happy to talk it out loud a little bit and for people to, as we're reading the text on, to come back to it. It sort of depends a little bit on what definition of hope you're in, for one thing, I think, you know? Um, I think that if you're in um, Rabbi Akiva's definition of hope, where there's sort of, there's a guarantee, a certainty um, I don't know. I feel like hope still feels to me, and this differs from um, what Havel was saying there, but hope still feels like it's contingent on a positive outcome happening at some point. Um, it's contingent upon the thing that I am hoping for happening. I'm hoping for something in some way or in some time to manifest this thing that I deem as positive, um, where I feel like faith is a little bit more handing it over whether that's handing it over to God or handing it over to forces that are beyond us, I think faith might sometimes be accepting. I'm not even sure, but I'm not even sure what the positive outcome is. I don't know how we're going to get there, but I'm just going to have faith that there is a, there is something beyond me that I don't understand. And I'm going to trust and have faith in that where maybe hope is I have a certain type of hope. I have a certain outcome. Um, and it's how much confidence do I have that we're going to get there or what I'm doing, what am I doing to um, get us there? Do you know when, did Havel write this? Was he still a dissident or was it after communism fell and he became president and was looking back? That's a good question. You know, I'm not, I know that he went in and out throughout so much of the period of these times of being in prison and not. So I'm not exactly where it falls in his personal narrative. Um, it would be interesting to know. Certainly he seems to be writing it after some period of reflection of having already been in prison a certain amount of times, but it would be interesting to know if he's still very much in that moment or if it's he's able to have enough distance to reflect on it, I'm not sure. That's a great question. So the question here is, is there a danger of hope? What happens when, like Rabbi Akiva, we tie our hope too closely to prophecy, to a certain belief that an outcome, a certain outcome will manifest? What happens when that outcome is slow to come? Or what happens when that outcome never materializes at all? What happens to our hope then? Um, and a second question, might there be other dangers to hope? What else might be dangerous about hope? As important as, as necessary as hope is as an orientation, what might be dangerous about it? So we're going to start with this text from um, the Gemara, from the Talmud Bavli, from Brachot on prayer. Kol to So anyone who lengthens their prayer and really is sort of in it closely, um, really spends their time and is deep within it, ultimately will come to a hurt heart, as it says in Mishle Tochelet Mimushacha Machala Lev, that hope that is made to wait, hope that is delayed, um, hurts 
the heart, makes the heart sick. And so Rashi on this line here, um, what does it mean? So anyone who lengthens their prayer, Yenba is sort of in it closely, looking closely into their prayer. Rashi says on this, what is this? This is the person who says um, in their heart that God should perform the thing that they asked for them, should perform their request because they prayed with so much kavana. So it's in a sense, what does it mean to be meayen, to sort of be so deep in our tefillah, to be lengthening it? You would have thought that actually to lengthen one's prayer and to really put a lot of kavanah would be a really good thing. And But what's a, what's a potentially a bad thing is when we're sort of so deep in our prayer that we hang, we hang sort of the, the certain our certain goal that we're trying to get out of it, our request, we hang it on our prayer and we say, oh, if I pray with enough kavanah, then it's going to come, it's going to come true. It's going to come true. God is going to make it happen. This is the person that's going to come to this hope that doesn't not, this hope that doesn't come to fruition, this hope that is pushed off makes the heart sick. So what does this mean? Hope that is deferred makes the heart sick. This is the, so this is the first we're hearing of there might actually be something problematic or dangerous about hope that hope can actually hurt us. Hope can actually make us sick in a, in a way. So I want to offer two examples of this, of what does it mean hope deferred makes the heart sick. Um, one is a sort of a, a sillier example. Um, I'm thinking about my five-year-old and he was um, earlier in the pandemic, um, which has not been going on for so long. He was um, waiting to receive a certain Lego set that he was really excited about with, you know, so many pieces. And this, he was like, for the first week where he was waiting, I don't know, it was like for some holiday or birthday or something. And it was a few weeks away. And for the first week, he was so excited and so happy. And it gave him so much energy and so much hope. And then the second week came and it was still not time for him to receive this Lego set that he was really excited about. And then he started getting sort of like cranky and miserable. And when's it coming? And when's it coming? The third week. And then he's like totally destitute. He can't wait anymore. He's so broken. He's so crushed. Ultimately, he got the Lego set. And then he was very pleased. But that he went on this journey from being like so energized, excited and hopeful to now feeling sort of crushed and downtrodden to sorely like deep in depression. I'm never going to get this Lego set until ultimately he got it. Um, that this hope that is pushed off when, when we are made to wait and the thing that we are wanting doesn't come on our timeline, that it not only might take us to say, we start out here, hope takes us up here and then we get back to here, but actually it brings us down. We end up, you know, sort of deeper in the sadness than we would have been had we not had hope in the first place. I think the second way, sort of the more real example here of hope deferred makes the heart sick is the timeline we've been in about, you know, when are we going to come out? When are we going to come out of this pandemic? When can we come out of our homes? Um, I remember earlier on when our kids stopped going to, you know, when our kid was doing online school, you know, we thought like, okay, it's going to be the month of March. And I was like, well, it's going to be the month of March and April. I guess it's going to be the end of the year. Um, and all of this, at this point, he's still not actually in school. He's still in online school. The question there is, you know, if we hung our hope too much on, we just have to make it through this month. Then when you make it through that month, and you're still in the same predicament you're in, then actually that can be even more crushing than if that your hope is a little bit more, you know, setting it on a longer timetable. That hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so the, the question here is, how do we maintain a stance of hope? Because that hope is so important, as we saw in those earlier texts, that, per, that orientation of hope. How do we maintain a sense of hope while also protecting ourselves in the events that our hopes don't materialize on our timeline? And so that's what we're going to see in this next text, looking to Rabbi Kolonimus Kalman Shapira, um, the Eish Kodesh. So Rabbi Shapira, he is writing in 
um, a time period of really um, deep hopelessness, writing in a time period of sort of the horrific horrors and despair during the time of the Holocaust. He's writing um, from the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, and, and a lot of what his writings, in so many of his writings, it's interesting thinking about, you know, what's the difference between hope and faith? Here, I think he is, I'm curious to see if you think he's talking about hope or faith here. He's sort of talking about hope and faith together. Um, but so much of his writing is really talking, it, it, sort of exploring um, or urging, what does it mean to be a person of faith, even in this moment where it, it, you're living in such a hopeless world, even this moment of total despair, how do we have faith and maintain faith in this moment? But in this piece, at this moment, what are the dangers of hope here? Um, what happens when we actually have too much hope and a certain outcome happening on a certain timeline, the danger of that hope? So how do we simultaneously maintain hope, but also protect ourselves? How do we hope in a way that is safe? Let's go ahead and turn to this text. This comes from the Eish Kodesh on Parshat Zahor. He's writing this on February 28th, 1942, from the Warsaw Ghetto. So he says, V'derech agav, eli gam mina nisayon, she'af she'adam tzarich lekavot bekol rega she'yoshiyehu Hashem. Mikom akom lo yismoch et kol atzmo al tochelet bilvad. So he says, and incidentally, continuing to connect to what he was saying before, he says, it also seems to me that this is part of the test, that what is the test, what is, what is the way in which we're being tested, that a person has to hope, the kavod, a person has to hope at every moment that God will save them, but at the same time that a person has to hope in every moment that God will save them, hoping that God will save them, at the same time, a person shouldn't place sort of all, this is a little bit of the expression, but in a totally different way, to place all of your eggs in one basket, that a person, you shouldn't rely too much. Don't place too much of yourself on the hope itself. That a person shouldn't place so much hope on the idea that this salvation is going to come immediately, keyword being immediately, because if, God forbid, some period of time passes and the salvation doesn't come, then that it'll be done, that which is said in the Pasuk, that the Tochelet Memushacha, the hope deferred, makes the heart sick. So on one hand, we have to always sort of maintain the sense of hope, always hope that God is going to save us, hope that God is going to come through and have the faith in that. And at the same time, we shouldn't place our hope that that's going to happen on a certain timeline or happen immediately, because then when that doesn't come, our heart is going to become sick. And more specifically, when a person relies too much or is sort of placing too much weight on a specific um, promise or a way in which the, the what they're hoping for is going to manifest that in this way, the salvation will come. And when it doesn't come that way, that person, their spirit will fall and the person will be broken even more than they were in the first place. And so here we see this balance that on the one hand, he's trying to give hope to the people in this time of such hopelessness to say, you have to always, you can't give up hope. You have to at every moment hope that God will save us, hope for that salvation. And yet, you can't place too much on this that it'll happen in a certain way or in a certain time frame. Because then, when it doesn't, this is the thing that might really break us. This is the thing that takes us even lower than where we were before. So he goes on and says, and consequently, if a person sustains himself 
only with his belief in imminent salvation, then his experience of agony and suffering remain unmitigated. If I only like, I just have to get through this moment. I just have to get through this moment, right? Salvation is coming now. It's coming now. Then the the pain I'm in, that's unchanged because I'm just waiting for that moment to get out of it. And it's difficult for him to bear when God forbid salvation is delayed. This is not the case if together with the belief in salvation, he also bows his head saying, the one is good and will do what's best in God's eyes. When we, when we defer to God, when there's this sort of submitting, this is where I think that faith comes in and we say, it's not necessarily, I hope, I'm hoping for this salvation, but at the end of the day, um, I'm submitting and I'm saying, God will do what is best. God will do what's best in God's eyes. It's not going to happen in the way that I want it to happen or in the timeline that I want it to happen. This actually softens and absorbs the bitterest feelings and lessens the sting of pain at what is happening. A person is then able to bear more and his faith has more power to boost his spirits, even when, God forbid, salvation does not come as he hoped. So I think Rabbi Shapira here is teaching us two things. One, I think he's teaching us the danger of hope. He's teaching us that when our hopes aren't fulfilled, it may leave us more crushed, more broken than where we were when we started. What happens when things don't happen as we hope for them? The second thing he's teaching us is that the same moment that we have to, that we hope, we have to hope with a sense of submission, with a sense of bowing our head and understanding that we don't have control, the control is beyond us, um, and a sense of acceptance that what may come will come. In our text from Makot, in our first text, and even in many of other the writings from Rabbi Shapira, we see the importance and we see the, the necessity of living with hope and living with hope to imagine a life beyond our current moment of hopelessness. But just as there can be a danger and a hope that's tied to a specific outcome, as we were starting to talk about before, there can also be a danger and a hope that is passive. One could come away from this text, from the Eish Kodesh, in this text in which ultimately part of what he's saying is you have to hope, but you have to um, bow your head to God. You have to submit um, and say, it's, you know, whatever God deems good, that will be good. That will, that will be what happened. You could come away from this text um, and take away a sense of hope that is a hope with passivity, a passive hope of, I'm just going to hope that God is going to save me. Um, but at the end of the day, I defer and I bow my head to God. But this isn't actually at all what Rabbi Shapiro himself did. He was not a person of passive hope. Actually, what he did is that he continued during, um, during the time of living in the Warsaw Ghetto, during the time of the Holocaust, he continued running Jewish life to its fullest, to the best that he could, even at extreme risk to himself, extreme risk to those who were helping with him, um, continuing to make sure that babies were being circumcised, that that was able to happen, continuing to make sure that people were able to go to the mikvah, um, continuing to make sure that there was regular prayer and minion happening, that there was a Beit Midrash and learning. There was actually nothing passive about Rabbi Shapira's hope at all, that on one hand, um, he was hoping and he was saying, um, submit to God. And on the other hand, he was actually still very active in his hope and, and taking a lot of agency and continuing to the best of his ability to make sure that Jewish life um, could exist, even when so much control was being taken from him. Hope itself doesn't manifest the change in the world in and of itself. The question is, what do we do while we're hoping for the world to become the world we wish it would be? What is our role and manifesting the world that we're hoping for. What is this thing that we're talking about? Hope is hope 
something that is activating and energizing that is pushing us forward is hope something that is passive that we just sort of hope for this day um, but that we ourselves don't feel any agency and I now want to turn to another text by Rabbi Shapiro from a different work of his Hachshirata Ibrahim he's going to talk specifically to this he's going to talk of what it means to um, what does it really mean to want things when you live in a world that is not the world that you want to live in or when you yourself are not the person you want to be and there is something that you want, there is something you hope for. He's going to talk about the difference between hoping for something versus really willing and making it happen in the world. So that's where we're going to go now um, to this text from Rabbi Shapira. So he says, if you want to measure yourself and to know if you have ascended or God forbid, if you have descended over the course of the past year or two, Look toward your desire, but just toward your desire, not toward your blessing. So what is he talking about? He's saying, if you want to judge yourself, judge your attributes, judge what kind of person you are in the world, whether you're um, improving in your attributes or God forbid, going down in your attributes, becoming sort of like a, a less uh, on a lower spiritual level, what you should do is look to your ratzon, your desire, Look specifically to your desire and not to your blessing. So here, this word blessing here um, is not going to mean anything to us quite yet. So we have to read on a little bit to understand. He's trying to distinguish between what is a bracha versus what is our ratzon. So he says, He says, only the ratzon, only the true desire that a person wants and works for with energy, with exertion to come to some fruition, to come to something, only this is called true ratzon. If he doesn't work towards it, even if he wants something, this isn't called true ratzon, right? What does it mean to have will to really desire something? Something that we really desire that is called true ratzon, this is something that we really, we don't just hope for it, we actually work to make it happen. Whereas if we don't work to make something happen, we don't exert the energy ourselves, it may be that rotsehu, maybe that we want that, aval einze ratzon. It's not really true desire. What is it? Rather, it's just a sort of blessing of the heart that a person blesses themselves with to make themselves happy, that they should become happy through this thing. So now he's going to give an example. What, what, sort of a, what is the difference between a blessing of the heart, a mere blessing of the heart, something that we want, but we don't work towards, we don't manifest ourselves versus ratzon, something we want and we make happen. He says a poor person for example, who wants a livelihood, that is indeed ratzon, that is indeed desire, as long as he works for it. But the wish such a person might have that he find a windfall worth thousands upon thousands of gold dinarim, this measurement of money, this is just a blessing. If a person just wished to suddenly come upon a mountain full of gold, this isn't a real ratzon. This isn't real desire. They're not doing anything to make this happen in the world. This is just a nice blessing that I bless myself with that I should become rich. It's not true desire. Um, so he goes on to say, so too, every Jew has a will to be righteous, but this is only a bracha. It's only a blessing that he blesses to himself, that he will wake up in the morning and find himself to be a righteous person. But this is not real desire. If you don't work toward it, it's not ratzon. It's just a nice bracha. 
It's just a nice thing that you say, right? This is passive hope. It's a passive hope. I hope one day I wake up and I'm a better, I'm a better person. I hope one day I wake up and the world is a place more filled with chesed. I hope one day I wake up and um, there's less poverty in the world and people have what they need. If we don't actually work towards it, that's not ratzon. It turns out that's not our real will. That's just a nice blessing that we bless ourselves with. That's a passive hope. Only the level and status of sanctity that a person desires and works to arrive at is called ratzon be'emet, is called a true desire. What Rabbi Shapira here is teaching us is he's teaching us the difference between what we want, what we passively sort of want for ourselves, that blessing, that hope we have for ourselves or for the world. I hope that the world becomes a better place. I hope I become a better person and what we desire and that a blessing for ourselves um, versus something that is true ratzon. What we really desire, we don't just hope that it manifests, we actually have to work for it. And if we want to be better people, we have to make ourselves into better people. If we want to live in a world of more chesed, we have to bring the chesed into this world. Otherwise, we have to admit to ourselves that it's not really our ratzon. It's just a bracha. It's just a nice blessing. Hope is important. As Havel writes earlier, and as we read, hope gives us the strength to live and to continually to try new things, even in conditions that seem as hopeless as ours to here and now. But a passive hope, a just a bracha, a nice bracha that we say to ourselves is not good enough. Rather, hope has to be paired with action. Hope has to be paired with ratzon, with true desire. And so then the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, well, then what do we really desire? What are actually the things that we not only want, but it's clear from our actions that we are putting the effort, we are putting the energy into making it happen in the world. What do we really desire? What is the world when we look around the world? What is not the world that we hope for, but what is the world that we desire? What is the world that we're willing to put in the energy to um, make that world come to fruition? Love to hear your thoughts and responses specifically. Um, what do you think these texts, what do you think about the difference between the difference between um, a bracha, a blessing we bless ourselves with, and ratzon, true desire. What are these texts teaching us about hope? And what are they teaching us about what it means to hope specifically in the moment that we're in now? Right, so Jill is writing, what about things that we sometimes have the energy to make happen and sometimes don't have the energy? I think that that's really fair. And what if the limits on our energy are connected to depression and not about lack of will? Okay, so I think that that's really fair. And I think that that's a really important point. There is a in a sense, there is a judgment that's being made here. Um, and it's a judgment that I think can feel really harsh, that you can't say you really want something if you're not actually doing the work of working towards it. Um, and Jill, what I think what you're hearing is sometimes it could be that you really want something, but there are actually limits to, sometimes there could be limits, emotional limits to how much we're able to do. Um, or there could be limits that um, there might be moments in which we are. This, I think, goes back to what Emily was saying in the beginning of sometimes we're actually could be so deep in the despair that it might be hard to come to that. It, it Maybe all we can do when we are so deep in that despair is to have that hope that is the flicker of seeing another world, but it's not actually enough to move us to action that really what it means to be um, something else that I've been thinking about really reminding us that this is actually the kickoff to the cohorts on resilience. So Jill, I really appreciate this. Something that I've been thinking a lot about with resilient, um, resilience looks differently for different people. And that's part of why I wanted to point out in that earlier story, not to judge the way the other three rabbis react to the runes and destruction that they cry and they're just in sadness where Rabbi Kiva is in the happiness and there might be the um, impulse to judge them and to say like, well, why are they in the sadness? They should have been able to go to the hope. They should have been taking action. 
Um, something I've been thinking about with resilience is that resilience looks differently for different people. And sometimes it's resilient just to wake up in the morning. And sometimes we have enough resilience to get dressed. And sometimes we have enough resilience to take on the world. Um, but fair enough, we don't actually always have the resilience to take on the world. And so, um, Jill, I, I appreciate that, that I, I think that there's something powerful on this text of calling us out and saying, at least giving language for ourselves. What are the things I really want and I'm willing to work for when I can work for them? And what are the things that I'm just sort of, I'm not actually staking any claim in, I'm not putting any energy, but at the same time, to be compassionate with ourselves and to be compassionate with other people and to not judge ourselves and to not judge other people, even though I'm saying both, right? We have to judge ourselves enough to call ourselves out to say, are we putting the work in? But at the same time, we have to be um, compassionate with ourselves um, and recognize that sometimes sometimes um, resilience looks different. And sometimes in this moment, what my resilience looks like is crying, actually. That's what it looks like. It looks like crying. Um, it looks like barely making it through the day. And then sometimes we're going to have the, the, the day where we can like take on the world, um, but that's not always at the same time. So Jill, I really appreciate that, that resilience can be a range of things. Emily, I like this comment. Hope requires imagination as does compassion. What is the role of imagination in hope? What is the role of imagination in resilience? I think that that is something that Rabbi Akiva has, that when he sees that, that site of destruction, those runes, he's able to see something beyond the fox in the Holy of Holies. He's able to see this other world. So Nancy says, I'm working towards what we want can be many things. In the midst of despair, the active work to hold on to the perspective that something else is possible, that might be the work of the moment. So Nancy, I, I really appreciate that way. Um, again, connecting to Jill's comment and resilience looking like different things in different moments that um, there might be a certain idea of, um, we might have to reimagine what does work mean? That we imagine work means like, I don't know, any number of things, but I, I think it seems something like taking to the streets, changing the world, doing it all, you know, I don't know what, organizing some something. Um, but Nancy, what you're saying is that sometimes when we are in the midst of it, when we are in the despair, it actually just to hold on to that hope, that is the work. Um, and I think it's really important to be able to name and acknowledge that for ourselves to say, like, actually, the thing I'm doing right now is emotional work. Um, and that's important work and to have compassion for ourselves there. And I want to end with the story of hope from the Talmud, but specifically, I want to end with the story of hope from the Talmud. That's not just a story of hope. That's really a story of hope and ratzon, a story of hope and will and action um, together in which we see them come together. Um, we're in Mesechet Sota. Ravavira taught, in the merit of the righteous women that were in that generation, the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt. And of course, we're going back to the time of um, the oppression and the slavery in Egypt. Um, when Pharaoh was oppressing the people and decreed um, that all the baby boys should be killed. And yet, as a result of the righteous women, the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt. So what did they do that were so righteous? What, what was the way in which they helped us get redeemed? At the time when these women would go to the river to draw water, the Holy One would materialize for them small fish that would enter into their pitchers, and they would draw pitchers that were half filled with water and half filled with fish, and they would then come and place two pots on the fire, one pot of hot water and one pot of fish. And they would then take what they prepared to their husbands to the fields and would bathe their husbands and anoint them with oil and feed them the fish and give them to drink and bond with them in sexual intercourse between the sheepfolds. Basically what's happened is this is a people that is crushed and is broken and is oppressed and I'm sure for very good reason is feeling hopeless. And what do these women do? These women manage to have enough hope keep trying to create new life 
to keep trying to create new babies. And they, they do this, they take the fish and they bathe their husbands and they anoint the oil and they give them the fish and they um, ultimately seduce them so that ultimately they get pregnant. But in order to do that, what is their righteousness? Their righteousness real here is really um, the hope to envision a world beyond the hopeless world in which they are and the righteousness to take action um, at a time when they could have all but given up and just been broken to somehow to take action to actually bring that world in to make sure that that life is going to continue beyond this generation. Mm -hmm. um, something that I just want to note is that on the one hand, they are taking the action, right? They're preparing the fish, they're bathing their husbands, they're anointing them with the oil, they're um, seducing them, they're making, they're like making sure this, they find a moment in this brokenness to have sex to create a new life. Um, but they're actually not doing it all by themselves because it's actually the Holy One that places the fish in their pitchers, um, that we can't actually do it all on our own. So continuing on with the text, as it stated, when you lie among the sheepfolds, this here is an illusion. So they're saying this is an illusion to this. When they were having sex among the sheepfolds, the wings of the dove are covered with silver and her pinions with a shimmer of gold, which is to say that when you lie among the sheepfolds, when they do this thing of, um, you know, seducing their husbands and, and having sex so that procreating so there can be more babies, they'll ultimately be rewarded. How are they going to be rewarded? Um, this refers to the Jewish people receiving the plunder of Egypt when they left in the night, as it's stated in the continuation of the verse. As a reference to the Jewish people, the wings of the dove are covered with silver and her pinions with a shimmer of gold. So what was the reward of them sort of lying in the sheepfold? It was that then they were going to actually make it out of Egypt and make it out of Egypt with all this silver and gold. And so what do these women do? When, they, when these women would become pregnant, they would come back to their homes. And when the time for them to give birth would arrive, they would go and give birth in the field under the apple tree. As it is stated from Shira Shireem, under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in travail with you. There was she in travail and brought you forth. So just so powerful. Not only do the women somehow find the hope to envision another world beyond this hopeless one, do they find the sort of the energy, the ability to make sure um, it would make so much sense to not keep bringing babies into this hopeless world, but to somehow make sure that happened. They then go and they deliver their own babies in their strength and in their resilience under the apple tree. But then what happens, again, in partnership, it's not all them. The Holy One would send from the heavens above one who would clean and prepare the newborns just as a midwife prepares the newborn. As it is stated, and as for your birth on the day you were born, your navel was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. And then the angel would gather for them two round stones from the field, and the babies would nurse from that which would flow out of them. One of the stones flowed with oil and one of the stones flowed with honey, as it is stated, and God would suckle them with honey from a crag and oil from a flinty rock. Um, so on one hand, we have the women, they would get, they would seduce the husbands, they would get pregnant, they would deliver their own babies, but it's actually this human divine partnership here, where then after the babies were born, this sort of like angel midwife would be sent that would help prepare the baby. Um, and the angel would help prepare these stones that then would allow the milk that they would need or the oil to flow forth from this. Um, ultimately, the, the rest of this text that we're not going to see inside is that the Egyptians then come for the babies, and um, the babies through this miracle are absorbed into the earth, um, and then come out only when it's safe to come out, coming out like grass and returning to their homes. I want to share this text here for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I think that this is a story that is a story that's both about the importance of human agency and also divine agency. That this story is teaching us that we can't actually do it all on our own. The story doesn't exist without God providing the fish for them 
or the midwives, the, the angel sort of midwife coming in and helping care for the baby. And at the same time, we also can't just sit there and hope that things turn out okay. That's not what the women in the story did. They didn't just hope that somehow the world, they would wake up in another world and then the next day would be a better day. They actually somehow had the hope, but also took the action to help ensure that there would be enough, another generation to see the next day. They feed their husbands, they seduce them, they get pregnant, they deliver their own babies. Had the woman just hoped for the next generation, that the next generation would come, it's not clear what would have happened, but they hoped and they also, they took action. I want to turn and look at the words of um, Rebecca Solnit, she's a writer and an activist. Um, she's going to take us through a lot of the different things that we've seen in hope in this session. She says, to hope is to gamble. It's to bet on the future on your desires, on the possibility that an open heart and uncertainty is better than gloom and safety. And I say all this to you because hope is not like a lottery ticket you can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky, right? Hope is not something passive that you just wait and feel hopeful that you're gonna win the lucky lottery. I say this because hope is an ax you break down doors with in an emergency. Because hope should shove you out the door, because it will take everything you have to steer the future away from endless war, from the annihilation of the earth's treasures and the grinding down of the poor and marginal. I love that line. What is the metaphor that you would use in your own life to think of hope? Is hope a lottery ticket? Is hope an axe that you use to break down doors? What is that metaphor you would use for hope there? Hope just means another world that might be possible, not promised, not guaranteed. Hope calls for action. Action is impossible without hope. And so here we see this text actually, I mean, not she's not directly referencing, but I'm saying it's referencing two different things. One is this is a little bit different than the hope of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, what gave him hope in the beginning was that guaranteed future. Now that I've seen the first prophecy, I know the second will come true. Um, hope, unfortunately, isn't always like that. Sometimes, in fact, as the Ace Kodesh was teaching us, as Rabbi Shapiro was teaching us, that when, we're, when we tie our hope so um, closely to a certain future, that actually might be a hope that will break us more than had we not had that hope. Um, rather, what is hope? Hope is not a guarantee that something will happen. It's rather just that another world might be possible. And also seeing in the Eish Kodesh that hope is not something passive that we just sit on. It's not just a nice bracha we tell ourselves, but rather hope calls for action and action is impossible without hope. At the beginning of his massive 1930s treatise on hope, the German philosopher Ernst Bloch wrote, to hope is to give yourself to the future, and that commitment to the future makes the present inhabitable. So I think she's teaching us, I think Rebecca Solnit is teaching us a couple of things here about hope. One, I think she's teaching us hope is not passive. Um, if we thought that, that if, if that is a version of hope, that's not, the, that's not the hope we want to end on. Hope is not passive. Hope and action, they have to go together. And that metaphor that is so powerful of hope is an axe that you break down doors with, that you throw yourself into what is becoming. And that the second idea is that hope is not a guarantee of a certain future. Rather, it is the possibility that another world might be possible. I want to end on a poem um, by Adrian Rich. Um, so I just want to note, actually, the title of the poem, Dreams Before Waking. What would it mean to live in a city whose people were changing each other's despair into hope? You yourself must change it. What would it feel like to know your country was changing? 
you yourself must change it. Though your life felt arduous, new and unmapped and strange, what would it mean to stand on the first page of the end of despair? So the first thing that I just wanna highlight about the poem is the title, The Dreams Before Waking. A couple of things. On the, I don't know about your dreams that you have before waking, but normally my dreams before waking are anxiety dreams in which everything is going wrong. Um, and so, so powerful in this poem to imagine a different kind of dream before waking that might be possible. Instead of anxiety dreams of all the things that we are doing wrong or all the things that are going wrong, but to imagine dreams that are not about the potential for things to go wrong, but actually the potential for things to go right. This dream time might represent is um, and and why why is this a why is this a poem written as a dream before waking right It might be that actually when we're in the reality of the world when we're in the despair when we're in the heart of it it's actually too hard to hope that we actually couldn't summon up this poem that we can only summon up that potential of the world that might be possible the hope of the world that might be possible that's only something that we can allow ourselves to feel in this sort of in between space of the dream before waking because once we wake maybe it's too hard but before we wake there's this potential, this ability. And what if in those dreams before waking, instead of thinking about the potential for things to go wrong, we thought about the potential for things to go well. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I just wanna highlight there is her language and to really ask ourselves, what would it mean to live in a city in which we're changing each other's despair into hope? If each of us were changing every person's despair into hope, what, what would it feel like? to live in that city? What would it look like? What would the air feel like? What would it mean to stand on the first page at the end of despair? And what if this, right this moment that we're in right now, what if, what if we don't even know it, but what if this actually is the first page of the end of despair? I wanna wish for us the blessing. I wanna wish for us the bracha that we may all live in these cities, um, these cities in which we're changing each other's despair into hope. Um, but more than just wishing us the blessing that we live in these cities, that we can change each other's despair into hope. I wanna hope that more than that, we actually have the ratzon, that we have the will, that we have the true desire um, to put the energy in ourselves, to manifest these cities ourselves. And at the same time as we're pairing hope with action to do it with the, um, which the comments that I heard from you all, um, at the same time that we're holding ourselves accountable, that we're holding hope with action together, that we're also holding hope with compassion. And we're holding hope free of judgment, um, that we're having compassion for ourselves, um, that sometimes resilience is just waking up within the morning. Um, sometimes resilience is just holding up, um, holding on to that hope, and that we're having compassion for other people, um, that sometimes what they need to be doing in that moment is looking at the runes and crying. And ho hopefully there'll be someone else who can, um, who can laugh and offer some bit of comfort. But sometimes we are the criers and sometimes we are the laughers. Um, all of that's okay. Um, and all of that is, as someone else said in the comments, all that is the work of um, holding onto hope in this moment. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and Sam Greenberg. Thank you to Michal Birnbaum and Nadav Remez for editing this episode. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.